Hi, I'm Anna McEwen, and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. Well, we are, we, we are on the verge. I, I think, I think, if I, I think, <laughs> I can't make promises because I talk so much, but I think this is, like the halfway point of the podcast. If you've been listening to the last 30 episodes, then then we're halfway there. I I know it's, it's close. The last one might've been halfway, but this one should definitely be, we might be one over half, but either way, we're, we're close to halfway. We are halfway. The variable is this. I know the longer David's alive, the more complicated his life gets and the more intrigue starts to get involved because because of what happens. But halfway there and David David becomes king. Dun, dun, dun. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Big stuff happens. It's also a chapter that takes on a pretty good block of time and it illustrates how long you know, uh, it it throws out a few things that basically says this is what happened like during his whole reign. So sometimes you may hear me refer back to this chapter because it talks about things that happened during his whole reign. But uh, it's it's also in that it's capturing some of the momentum that that stayed with David when he was king. That there was just there was this movement that occurred with David. But before that happens, he has to be anointed king. So when when we left him, he was at Hebron. He had he had uh, killed the two raiders who had come in with Ashibabeth's head, who thought they were going to be, you know, uh, anointed or rewarded for their efforts to pave the way for David to march into the capital city. But David didn't take advantage of that. David waited, waited until this, right? Chapter 5, verse 1, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Whoa, think about that. That's not a flippant phrase. That means David did not move from Hebron to the capital city and the palace that Saul had created. Do you, do you understand? I mean, the significance of that is is huge. The pathway was there, the opening was there. the 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 house was literally vacant at this point. Shibabeth dies. The maids go home. The servants go home. The attendants go home. The palace is empty. And trust me, uh, I mean, I, I follow some really fun uh, Instagram people. Uh, one of them is uh, it's abandoned hashtag it's abandoned. Another one is uh, uh, maybe it's two of them that are called that. I don't know. I, I follow a couple of people who basically take pictures of abandoned places. One of them uh, is pretty famous. He's been around. His name is Steph Lawless or something. Um, he's been around for a long time, has several published 
books and documentaries out on things because he did specifically he went about uh like the u.s malls took these pictures i mean breathtakingly ghostly ghastly pictures of malls that have been abandoned because people don't go to malls anymore and uh oh amusement parks are another thing that he takes pictures of that are just amazing there's another guy too steph is out there he's been around for a long time um Definitely doesn't follow, I would say, biblical principles in his own life, but that's okay. I mean, he's still an amazing artist. And then there's another guy who does, who is a Christian, because periodically he'll post a uh, a Bible verse or he'll, he'll tag something that's abandoned. He'll apply it from a Bible verse. It's kind of interesting, his artwork as well. But it's fascinating how quickly things disintegrate when people don't live there. I guess that's my point. Um, well, I know, get to the point. That's what <laughs> the engineer in my head's like, that's a great side trail, Bob. Hmm, so relative. <laughs> but it is relative because things go downhill fast when things are abandoned. And the palace uh, at Gibeah, where Saul had built things up, was now abandoned. And I would imagine... The first thing that move in are the critters, right? The dirt starts to pile up. The the desert um, rats, I guess you'd call them, mice, uh, rodents, they start moving in. Spiders are moving in. Uh, snakes start slithering in. Plants start growing in the courtyard that don't belong there. And then, you know, ultimately, um, maybe some squatters. But I don't know how long of a period it took. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. I kind of think it took about six months because because of the way things are phrased a little bit. Um, David was, it says that David reigned in Hebron over Judah for seven years. And then later on in this, in this, uh, in, in verse four, it says David reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, which we'll get to in a minute, um, he reigned there for 33 years. So I kind of think that he was seven seven years in Hebron for uh, on his own, and the six months was when he technically oversaw the whole nation, and probably started practically overseeing the whole nation. Like he he started protecting the whole nation. Uh, he started making sure commerce was starting to flow through all the nation. He made sure that they knew that he was going to be at peace with them. He sent envoys out, representatives, just to just so that people would know, listen, David is at Hebron. Everything's fine. He's not coming after you. He's not coming up after the house of Saul. So all the tribes of Israel, so that basically means all the elders of all the clans of the tribes. So it was a pretty good group of people. They all showed up. So this is like, uh, I'm guessing, I'm guessing probably close to 500 people. And they show up at Hebron. And their goal, their purpose, they didn't show up unannounced, but their purpose was to crown David king. So there was a ceremony involved in these verses. There was uh, some, some pomp and circumstance some acknowledgement on their part, some physical uh, representation so that everyone in the city, all the military 
you know, people, all of the, all the merchants, all of, uh, whoever was in court that day to, uh, to work out trade deals and stuff, they would be able to see that this was a public event. So that's why I think probably 500 of them showed up because they wanted to be part of it. And they probably brought a pretty good group of onlookers because this was a big deal. Remember now these tribes, right? They swore allegiance to Saul. These tribes uh, were part of Saul's desire to kill David. They supported Saul. So when Saul was king, and Saul, I mean, like I, I've tried, I tried to be honoring of Saul's good points. Saul was, Saul did protect the nation. Saul did allow commerce to to move forward. Saul did, you know, he set up a culture of, of rewards, but and fear, but within that culture, you know, people were promoted, people got awards, people got richer. So there was. There was wealth that, that was there. And even David acknowledged that. If you remember back when Saul died, David acknowledged it in his ode, in his in his song to Saul. He's like, he clothed the women in jewels. He clothed them in fine linen. In other words, he he presented uh, trade agreements and, and marketing agreements that were very beneficial to everybody. And, and you can't take that away from him. But that's heaven's perspective on things, right? Heaven's going to look at the good. We often tell people uh, when when we when we try to help people see the good, we're like anybody can find the dirt when you're digging for gold. Like if you want to describe <clears throat> the dirt that comes out of a out of a uh, a gold digging, that's fine. Like you'll be busy all day describing all the dirt and the dust and the rocks and the stones and the this size and that size and this color that color. But what are we really after? We're after the gold. That's heaven's perspective. It finds the gold. So these guys supported Saul though while he was hunting uh, David. Even though you know they were they were awarded for supporting Saul, technically they were also after David. They wanted David dead. That's what they did. They supported Saul's desire to kill David. And then when Saul fell, they resisted David. They followed Abner, any one of these tribes, any one of these tribes at any time could have said, um, pretty sure Samuel anointed David to be the next king and Saul's dead, so David should be king. We're going to go with David. The only tribe that did that was Judah. The only tribe that did it was Judah. Everybody else? Everybody else went along with Abner. Abner, whether it was by force or authority or fear, I don't know. But they all followed Abner. They didn't support David, even though they all knew David was supposed to be the next king. Now they all arrive at Hebron. This is, in and of itself is an act of humility. Because if David was at Gibeah, they would be going to, quote, their capital city to crown their new king. Instead, they're going to Hebron. They're going into the tribal area of the only tribe that, that swore allegiance to David and stayed with David and made him king. That's, that's humiliating. 
<laughs> well, depending on your depending on your emotional state, you could be humiliated by doing this. But it is an act of humility to do this. And they go to the capital city that David is currently king at. They they come to him, and they're going to crown him king. So this is this is a huge deal. When you read the sentence, it's big, and it took time to put together. That's why I think the six months is what it did. The first couple months, they were sending out messengers, coordinating, making sure David knew, yes, we are going to crown you king. Yes, we're, we're putting together our alliances. They probably brought a ton of gifts in acknowledgement that their riches now belong to David and to the nation. They brought livestock. They brought linens. They brought gold. They brought jewelry. They probably brought several wives for him to have just to seal this this covenant this this uh connection it's it's a it's a big deal and it probably took days if not a week of interactions and celebrations and and i mean come on i mean uh you know you look at the politicians today right i mean they can they can make a ceremony out of anything and they read plot proclamations and and all that stuff. And so back then, when there was no media, they would read these pro- proclamations, and they would then read them around the city, and people would run out into the villages and read them as as well. Read them from the the tower, read them from the mountaintops, proclaim throughout the land. I mean, this is this goes on and on and on, which is fine. But this is what they proclaimed: We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. That was their main proclamation. Listen, they they wanted to make it clear. Uh, you're, You're our flesh. We are going to follow you because you are our our flesh. You're our family. Now this is this is awesome. Then they go on and, and they proclaim this. Yes, Saul was king over us. But let's remember, let's remember you were being blessed by God. You were the victorious uh, commander. You were the one that favor flowed through. It was because of you and your victories that Saul was able to set up such great trade deals. If you weren't running our military, no other nation would have respected us. That's what's that's what's in that phrasing. And then they reminded David again that he was he was predicted and anointed by God to be their ruler. God chose you. God chose you to be our next king. And we're we're going to submit to God's decision. We're going to go with God's plan. We tried our plan, didn't work. Now we're going with God's plan. Listen, it's never a bad idea to go with God's plan. It's never never a bad idea to go go with God's plan. It's fine. You, they, these guys had the freedom to follow their own plan. They had the freedom to try and keep Saul's lineage alive, to keep the heir of the throne on the throne. It's fine. David's ability to wait, David waited. 
man, that had to be hard. Because I have no no doubt that there were people that were that were uh, desperate desperate to see him walk into Gibeah and take over the palace. There were advisors that were that were pushing him that direction. There were politicians that were pushing him that way. There were military guys that lived there that were like, okay, now we're with you, but can we can we go take over the palace again? And David waited. I think this is where we we need to we need to take a moment to remember one of the people that came with with David from the caves. Uh oh, and now his name has left me. Uh Abishai? Abish no Ab Azarel? No. Um Ashibabeth. Oh man. Anyways, he's <laughs> I know, I know people in the podcast are like, you remember it. I know. And you would think me doing the podcast would be the guy who remembers these things because I tell these stories. But names <laughs> names are difficult for me. <laughs> oh baby. I'm looking. I literally have the notes for all the episodes that I've already done are taped up on the wall in front of me, but they're so far away from where I sit. I can't read them. I just have them there for reference, but I can't really read them. Let me lean back. Uh, let's see. Uh, David's David in the caves. Where's David in the caves? A cave of a dullum. Uh, <laughs> Oh man, forget it. Anyways, the bottom of the the, the guys, the guys, <laughs> the guy, one of the guys he picked up besides his mighty men, he picked up the grandfather of Bathsheba, which I know plays a key role in the future. So I'm sure I'll say his name eventually. But he's there in the cave, and it's later he's described by David as, uh, it says his wisdom is that it's like talking to God, like his wisdom is so sound and so secure that it's that it's it's like talking to God. Like you can count on it so much that you might as well be talking to an infallible voice. And that's the way David viewed this main counselor. I will do my best to look this up and have it available for the next one. I, I I'm I'm slightly embarrassed. But just, I think it's at this time, one of these, you know, this is one of those moments where I think that man's advice was was really key for David because I have no doubt he was getting a lot of counter advice that would say, move, move into the capital, take over the palace, take over the palace, take over the palace. And I think the advice of this, this main advisor was important. And the other thing that was really important to him was the time that he spent with with God out in the, when he was a shepherd. And I believe, and I mentioned it back then, and I'll I'll just so I'm reiterating, I believe that when he was anointed king, David knew when I'm anointed king over the whole nation, I am going to get Jerusalem. I'm going to take it. That will be the capital city, because I believe he got a word of knowledge, if you want to call it that. If you're if you're if you understand what I'm saying theologically, uh, some of you may, I, I, uh, maybe another way of putting it would be, I believe that the Lord indicated to him through, through 
his spirit through interactions in worship that Jerusalem was a city that that he had mentioned all the way back it, with Moses when he said I will have my people and I will and there will be a city dedicated to me and and I believe that David got a word of knowledge that Jerusalem was designed for that city so this whole period of life right this whole years since whatever he got that word of knowledge David has in the back of his mind always like a sub sub program constantly running in the back of his mind when I'm king I'm taking Jerusalem for the Lord I'm taking Jerusalem for the Lord and during this time remember a whole time Saul is king Jerusalem remains in in the you know the control of another of another tribe completely even though technically it's kind of in the Benjamite territory not quite it's right along the border but technically it's there and no one can defeat the city and David I'm sure keeps note of that because he knows eventually I'm going to have to take on the city it's going to have to fall so all the elders show up and during this whole pomp and circumstance where they're declaring these things these proclamations over and over and over again in different means in different venues in different different uh places around the the area of of hebron and judah we are your own flesh and blood in other words we are family in the past saul was king over us but you were the victorious one all the favor that saul was able to to channel to us came because of your victories and the favor of god on your life and God already anointed you to be shepherd over all his people, and you will be their ruler. And they remind him of the fact that he's a shepherd, that he's somebody who God had chosen to guide and to, and to gently oversee. We're family. We're sheep. And, and the, the, you know, as sheep, we unify under the shepherd. Remember, we, we learn that again in the New Testament where Jesus says, my, sh- my sheep hear my voice, and they come when they are called. There's lots of people that help herds of sheep to stay together and to, you know, to be fed and watered and, and sheared and all that, but there's only one shepherd, and they're trained to that voice. And what these elders are saying is, listen, you're the shepherd. We will follow your lead. We will hear your voice. We will do what we're told. And this is, so this is a significant proclamation that they made. And when all the elders had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed the King David over Israel. So, so although we don't get the specifics, basically David responds. He, he, he makes a covenant with them. They proclaim this throughout the land. They probably started proclaiming it as they entered the borders of, of Judah, and they proclaim it through Judah. They, they proclaim it in the city. They proclaim it at the banquet table. They proclaim it in the throne room. And David responds and says, yes, I will be your king. I will, I will um, yeah, I will be a part of all that, all that we are. And we will, you know, unite under our Lord and our Lord and King, the God of Israel, da 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 da. David was 30 years old 
when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years, and then again it broke down. Judah for seven and a half years, and Jerusalem he reigned for 33 years over the whole nation. Now David gets in his, you know, gets to move forward. He knows right away, I need a new capital city. I can't go take over Gibeah because that holds memories and 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 connection to, to too many people. We need a we need a place that can be dedicated to the nation. So he picks Jerusalem. He knows it's supposed to be Jerusalem. Jerusalem is is a you know a, a very strong city as far as its ability to withstand battles. It clearly can be defended very well and for long periods of time because the people that are there don't even belong to the rest of the nation. They have no ties. The Philistines haven't taken it and the Israelites hadn't taken it. This city stands strong. The Jebusites which live there are are very um, arrogant about their ability to stay there. They were there when David took on Goliath, which is an interesting thing, right? So David takes the head of Goliath to Jerusalem and leaves it at the gate. So I don't know if they knew who David was when he did it. I'm guessing they they made some sort of connection. I just don't know if they knew who he was when he showed up the first time, uh, you know, walking along the street, this uh, this warrior covered in blood with a with the head of a giant, which I'm sure was probably bigger than most heads, so they kind of knew what it was. He tosses it at the city gate and he walks away. They probably like, uh, okay, right? So they just push the head into a ditch somewhere and let it let it rot, let the critters come and eat it. David goes back, but. I'm guessing through rumors and testimonies, they figured out, oh, that was David. David brought the head of Goliath and threw it at our feet. Awesome. We have no idea what that means. So David comes back to the city probably 15 years later, maybe maybe 16 years later. And he, and he marches to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who live there. So... He sets up camp, basically what that means, right? He sets up camp. He's within visual range of the Jebusites. They all know, ooh, somebody's come to attack the city. Oh, what are the odds they're going to win? Oh, we're scared now. Oh, there's there's an army outside. Ooh, they're not scared at all. And they send a message to that effect. You're not going to get in here. Even the blind and lame could defend us against you. David cannot get in here, they thought. And it says, well, nevertheless, David captured it. He captured the fortress on Zion, which was going to be called the city of David. Now, how he did it is always fun because it's just fun. So remember this. Jerusalem slash Zion is basically two hills and three valleys. One hill was Zion. That was the fortress. The second hill is a little mountain called Mount Moriah. That is where the temple is going to be built. So he's attacking Zion. He's attacking the first hill. It's been uh, 500 years. 500 years that this city has stood without being taken. 
That's a long time. Like our nation of, you know, America is what, 200 and, it's over, it's over, I know, it's 76, it's 230 years old. In 2026, it'll be 250 years old, right? Is that right? I don't, Bob, this is a math problem. You should do math before you start talking because you know you can't keep track of math very well. This is true. I can't. I can't. I'm going to do math right now. Stay tuned, everyone. <laughs> Let's see. 1976. Uh, oh, sorry. I did that wrong. 19... Uh, 76 minus 20, 26 equals, yeah, it'll be 51 years old. So we're less than that now. We're less than 250 years old. That's really my point. Those of you that just went a little ballistic listening to me because you can do math in your head. I'm sure my wife's one of those people. She is unbelievable with numbers. Unbelievable. She's so much fun. Just just crazy how she sees numbers. It's it's awesome. So like our nation is whatever, 250 years old-ish, not quite, but almost. And we've had a few terrorist attacks. Uh, early on, we had some incursions from Mexico. But generally speaking, no one's taken our country. Japan attacked us, you know, an outlying, so to speak, island, but it was us, and that's as far as they got. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what the plans are, that's as far as they got. It's it's interesting. So imagine living in a place that's gone 500 years without, without being taken, 500 years, generation after generation after generation, all you've known is is that the city you live in is is uh, safe. That's all you know. The military, I'm sure, I'm sure the military was in existence, but clearly their opinion of their of the military is it's not really necessary. The lame and the blind could defend the city. It doesn't take much. The military, you know, they they guard the gates. That's pretty much their job because Jerusalem, uh, Zion, makes their money off a of trade because they're an island unto themselves as far as tribal units go. So they're just, they make, they make their money. They have, uh, they have a good time and they shut the city gates and nobody else gets in. It's pretty, pretty impressive. 500 years, pretty impressive. And they live there. In territory that never belonged to them. So, uh, what, 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 yeah. Getting over the walls, not going to happen. Shooting things over the walls, it's been tried before. We're, we'll be fine. Trying to, uh, you know, build something to get up to the walls, you can't do it. The valley's right there. You you can't you can't build something that big. It's uh it's impressive. So there they go, making fun of David. Come on. That's uh the 
David, we appreciate you being here. Listen, we, we know what you're trying to do. You know, you're the new king. Woohoo! No big deal. Let's work out a deal. We'll work out a trade agreement. You're not taking the city. So David took up residence there in the fortress of, of Zion. There you go. Wow, how did he get up there? Well, let's read about it. It says, uh, it took up residence. He built up uh, the area around it and from terraces inward. He became more and more powerful because the Lord had, had uh, Almighty was with him. In other words, he had the blessings of the goodness and, and stuff of the Lord. Haram, the king of Tyre, sent uh, envoys. He sent logs and carpenters and stonemasons. David knew it was the Lord that had established him the king over Israel. Yeah, but how did he take the city? Oh, well, we have to read. This is what he did. He told he told his men, he said, this is, this is the deal. The only way to take the city is up through the, the shaft. This is it. On that day, David said, this is verse 8. Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach the lame and the blind who are my enemies. That is why they say the blind and the lame will not enter this the palace. So there it is. That's his whole plan. David knew and had figured out sometime during life there's no way to get over that wall. The only way is in through the water shaft. And David makes a proclamation. He says, listen, guys. Whoever is willing to climb that water shaft and take on the city, I will promote to commander over the over the armies. Because it's going to take somebody with a lot of strength. It's going to take somebody who is willing to do battle because you're going to have to fight all the way to the city gate by yourselves. Because you can't do this. It's not like we can send 150 men up the shaft at once. It's literally like those like those mountain climbing things, right? You're going to have to stretch your arms out and your legs out, and you're going to have to inch your way by pressing against the walls all the way up this shaft. And you've got to climb in through the water, so you're going to be wet. Your hands will be wet. Your feet will be wet. And if you're climbing, you don't go in with armor. You go in with your bare necessity, a small knife, Maybe a bow and arrow. And that's it. Now there's not much military inside the city, guys. They've been, de- they've been able to defend the city for 500 years. They are not used to being in military battles. They have a few guards. But you need to get them out. And open the doors. And Joab took it on. Now this is Joab, the guy who just killed uh, uh, Abner. Jeez, I was going to say Avon. No, no, Bob. Abner, please get at least one of the words right today. So Abner climbs this thing. Soaking wet. I'm guessing maybe four or five other guys came with him. Maybe he threw a rope down and they climbed up a little easier than he did. But Abner climbed the shaft on his own. When he gets to the top, he looks for a guard. Maybe there was one. Maybe two. This was the water. This is what allowed Jerusalem to stay unattackable because you could lay siege to the city 
for years, but they always had water, which meant that they could always irrigate and turn their roadways into into fields and plant corn and wheat and and barley and they could make bread and they could they could figure out you know how to drink and and they always had water. So it didn't matter how long you were outside the city. No one could get up their water supply. No one could climb the shaft. It's a steep st- shaft. It goes very deep. And there was no way up it. So I'm guessing they had a guard or two. I mean, they had a military outside, so they probably put some guards around it because this is their only weak point. And they waited. I don't know if you've ever been around a well, but you can hear it's it's an echo chamber. So not only did Joab have to climb it, he had to climb it quietly because he had no idea what was at the top. He had no, no idea how many or who was at the top, if any was at the top. His heart had to be racing like crazy. His mind, his eyes were as wide as they could get, and he's staring straight up into the darkness. Maybe there's a maybe there's a torch. Maybe he can see the torch, but maybe not. It may have just been a, a, a wooden gate to protect it from you know at night from critters falling in. But but remember, this is a flowing river. It's not a well. This is a water supply that flowed. So he he's climbing this thing, trying to be quiet, trying not to slip, pressing against the walls. If you've ever done isometric type of, of weights, right, where where you're basically it's pressing, right? It's just it's just pressing arms, you know, hand against hand, uh, pressing your feet, holding things, real slow uh, uh, movements. But isometrics will wear you out. This is worse than Pilates. This is insane. He gets all the way to the top and he conquers whoever's there. Pushes open the gate, kills kills the guards, throws down a rope, gets a few more guys, and they start running in the darkness, hiding, ditching, crawling. They get to the gate. They kill those guards. They open the gate. David marches in and it says he set up shop. I mean, it, it's just outside of the time and the intensity that Joab used to get, a, excuse me, get up the water uh, shaft. It's a pretty quick battle because once you're in, there wasn't a lot there because they they had spent 500 years becoming way overconfident, way overconfident. And Zion becomes the city of David. And it says he took up residence in the fortress and he called it the city of David. He built up the air around it. It says from the terraces. And what does that mean? Terraces mean landfill. In other words, he started he started creating more space. He started creating more uh, opportunity for government buildings and for the palace to be built. This was going to be the capital city. And he was going to make it glorious. He had expansion ideas. He already knew what he, he knew what he was going to do. He had been planning this for years. And this means time. Again, remember when I when I say that this chapter takes on large chunks of time. This expansion took place for years under David's reign. It didn't happen overnight. And he had a good 
uh, connection, a, a treaty, a covenant probably with the king of Tyre. And Tyre was, you know, what they were a logging community. And so he sent tons of, of, of uh, materials to David to expand, to build up uh, retaining walls so that they could landfill it and they could build a, you know, a building on top of it, then more and then more and then more. And he kept pushing out and pushing out and pushing out and it became greater and greater and greater over the years that he was there. More and more governor government because more and more treaties were signed, more and more victories occurred. People were sending in envoys, uh, concubines. It says that he collected, uh, verse 13, after he left Hebron, David took on more concubines and wives in Jerusalem and more sons and daughters are born to him. And these are the names of the children. And they list them off. Uh, one, like Solomon's one of them. Nathan's one of them. Uh, on and on he goes, like basically saying, listen, David, David expands his, his family. He expands his wives and concubines, which speak again to the treaties and covenants that he signs with various kings around the world. Known world at that time. This was, this was a big deal. And you could say, well, God was, God was blessing him. Yeah. He gave God credit for all of this. It's always remember this. God's blessing on someone else doesn't mean he runs out for you. That's a, that's an earthly mentality. When you, when you look at things from a heavens, heavenly perspective, you realize there is, there is no limit to what God can do. Yes, God is blessing David. Why? Because David chooses to continue to govern the people from a he- from heaven's perspective. He chose- chooses to listen to wise counsel that also carry heaven's perspective. He's he's pursuing and protect the protection of the nation so that he can create a world around him that draws people into a relationship with God. Does that make sense? Because Yes, what he draws in, the nations are coming to Israel. They are coming to Jerusalem. They're drawn to Jerusalem because of the peace that is that is attributed to David. The peace which comes from heaven. They're, they're drawn to Jerusalem because of the hope that David has for the nations, not just his nation, but for the nations to be unified. That hope, that's a heaven thing. They come to Jerusalem because they want to see a ruler that rules it out of love, that values people and helps comes alongside them to help them explore and expand their calling and identity. That type of leadership comes from heaven. It's not something anyone else in the world was experiencing. Like David was building a, a governing body and a nation that would draw other nations to God not just to Jerusalem to make David rich. And that's why it says the Lord God Almighty was with him. This is not an exclusionary. God is not exclusionary in his blessing. But your availability to receive blessings is what makes it look like that. We set ourselves up to resist God's blessing because we think our plan for justice is a better plan than God's. We think our plan for uniformity is better than God's plan for unity. David had thousands of choices 
that he made in the wilderness in Hebron, even the, you know, even his time in the Philistine land helped him show, you know, showed him the error of some of his choices. But David made thousands of choices throughout his time up until he was, he was finally crowned king over the nation. Those choices all reflected a pattern, a pattern that says, I'm waiting on God's timing. I'm waiting on God's blessing. I'm waiting on God to deliver me. I'm not going to take things into my own hands. I'm not going to be selfish. I'm not going to, you know, uh, rule and manipulate through fear and through rewards and through guilt and through shame. I'm going to, and, and intimidation like Saul did. I'm going to do the right thing. Did he 100% of the time? No, but generally speaking, this was the pattern he had. So his general pattern would allow for a, a more consistent flow of God's blessing into his life. The things he wanted to do, God was already a part of because he wouldn't, like when you're when you're tracking with God, the stuff that you want is the stuff God wants. It's not like, you know, so many times we make, we make hearing from, you know, hearing the will of God, like some different thing, like, well, you know, I want to to do this and this, so I've got to lay that aside and wait for God's will in my life. You got to lay what aside? You got to lay aside the fact that God wants to bless you and and give you amazing things. Listen, David didn't always have quote amazing things if you looked at him, but David always had an amazing things coming in from God. He didn't look at his time in in the wilderness as oh that was the dark night of the soul. That was my time in the wilderness. Like Moses, I had to spend time in the wilderness. No, no. Was he in the wilderness? Yes. Did his circumstances look bad? Probably. Yeah, if you looked at it from the outside, you're like, wow, this guy has nowhere to live. And the king is constantly chasing him with 3,000 people to try and kill him. That's not good. But David looked every day as a blessing. Every, every moment he was able to live was a moment of life, of blessing from the Lord, so occasionally when his life was really in danger, he didn't look at it like, oh, this is my life. He looked at it like, oh, this is a moment in my life. I've just had 40 million wonderful moments with the Lord. I have one bad one right here. Okay, now Saul's gone. I got more wonderful moments with the Lord coming. Like he focused on the gold. He didn't focus on the dirt. This is what gives life. This is a life-giving leader. This is a life-giving perspective. This is what changes the world. And it literally starts to change the world. God has not manipulated circumstances to force his, his man into the throne. And I know that there are people who preach it that way. And it's unfortunate because they don't see God as a God who is sovereign, who could work through anything. They see a God who is dictatorial. They call it sovereignty, but they see a God who's dictatorial, who only gives you the illusion of choice, the illusion of freedom. But the reality is God has already chosen your way and you are predestined to walk that path. I'm sorry. I just got to preaching, didn't I? Yeah, Bob. Way off the narrative. I know. I know. Well, you can you can email me about that if you want more, and uh, I can go into it on a side on a side on a bonus podcast on a Thursday someday. I just I just think it's so valuable in the narrative 
to see what David's doing here, to understand the intensity of what David has done. When he becomes king, the journey he's taken here is what sets him up to be blessed of the Lord, to constantly be expanding his government, to be expanding the city of David and ultimately the Temple Mount as well, Mount Moriah, which is right next door. The whole, both mountains are called Jerusalem. But that's why it, it gets, it can get confusing because it'll be referred to as the city of David. It'll also be referred to as the city of the Lord. It'll also be referred to as Jerusalem. So it's all the, it is technically all the same landmass. It's just two different hills with three valleys around it. All right. Let's call it a day. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, check me out online, uh, thebobswitzer.com. There's contact information there. Like I said, if you want to email me, you can go through the website or you can just email me directly at uh, thebobswitzer at gmail.com. Either way is fine with me. Hope you guys have a fabulous day. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.